Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, <clears throat> one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. And we're going to see here Paul, for the purposes of evangelism, become kind of a cultural chameleon, kind of changing what he will do, how he'll behave to reach others. When my wife was pregnant with our first child, we decided that we were going to take a baby class. Okay, now this wasn't like a parenting class. We had gotten a lot of that from the church. Instead, this was a baby survival class, like how to keep your baby alive. Now, my wife did not need that. She was a professional nanny. She knew everything about kids. I, though, had never changed a diaper. And so I went into this baby survival class. It was taught at like a baby's R Us or something. They had some nurse, and I was ready. Though I knew nothing about being a father, I knew my job was to keep the baby alive. Mom would do everything else. She would feed it. She would change it. She would raise it. She would do all the stuff, and I would just simply make money and keep the baby alive. So that was my goal. And so I went to this class that they, uh, that, where they teach you how to keep your baby alive. And I was totally into it, like way too into it. So the nurse comes in and she's like, what you need to do first is program poison control, their number on your phone. That way, if your baby eats something they shouldn't, you can just push a button. And I'm like, that is genius. Done. Next. And then she would be like, she'd pass out these little rubber babies. And she's like, here's what you need to do. If your baby starts choking, you put your baby face down and you gently hit the baby's back. And I'm like, live baby, live. And I'm just smashing that baby. And she's like, that's too much. That's too much. And then we moved to CPR. And she says, if your baby's not breathing, you put your mouth over the baby's nose and mouth. But because their lungs are small, you just give it a little puff of air. And she looks over at me and I've got like a baby balloon. I'm like, (gasps) this thing is about to pop. When it comes time, again, to do the little chest compression, she's like, remember, gently, it's a baby. And again, I'm like, live, baby. And the little baby's eyes are popping out on this little doll. And I'm like, stay alive for daddy. That's what I'm doing. I'm learning to the dads. I'm becoming a dad, if you want to say it this way. I'm learning what it looks like to be a dad. And at one point, she was talking about what happens if a spider or a snake or something bites your baby. And I raised my hand and I said, If a snake bites your baby, do you take a knife and cut between the fang marks and suck the poison out? And she goes, I've never had someone ask me that. (laughs) But the answer is no, you just take your baby to the hospital, okay? So I was learning. I didn't know anything about parenting, but I realized for the sake and the good of another, I had to adapt with my behavior. I had to change some things. I had to learn some things. We're going to see that Paul's going to do something similar here uh, that I had to do in becoming a dad. And I've learned a lot since then. And both of my kids are still alive. All right, so... Let me pray, but before I do, I just want you to to notice this. As we work through this text, we're in a section in 1 Corinthians where Paul has basically been saying that there are times Christians should lay down their freedoms for the sake of loving others, that loving others is more important than you always getting to do what you want to do. Now Paul is going to shift, and he's going to take that same principle, but he's going to use it not for Christians, but for reaching lost people. He's going to use it for the purposes of evangelism. So as we work through this text, I want you to see seven implications about evangelism as we work through this. We'll put them up on the screen as we go, but I want you to be looking for those. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that you and you alone are God. As your word says, there are no gods before you. There are no gods after you, that you are one. There is only one God. And yet, you are distinct, that you are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, as you have always been. We confess that you have made humanity out of the dirt, that there's an infinite gap between us and you, and yet we have rebelled against you, but because you love us, You've sent the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to take on flesh, to become a man so that we might be saved. We thank you, Jesus, that you have done all the saving, that we cannot earn it, we cannot do it good enough. We did not die on a cross. We did not atone for our own sins. 
Would you give us grace now as we open your word? We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. It's for your name and glory, we pray. Amen. Verse 19, Paul says this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now, I need to point out a translational issue here. Do you see this phrase here where he says, made myself a servant? That's not what the word is in Greek. The Greek word is just enslaved. I actually don't love it when Bible translators translate the Greek word slave as either servant or bondservant. That's too PC. A servant has rights. A slave doesn't. A servant owns themselves. A slave doesn't. A slave is owned by another. A servant can decide to just go work for somebody else, but a slave cannot. Paul is starting off this text by saying something that is very countercultural by identifying himself as a slave to others. Here's what he's saying. Though I'm literally a free person, Paul's a Roman citizen. He's, he's free politically. He has made himself a slave for the purposes of saving others. Now, notice how countercultural that is. Paul's highest value is not the highest value of an American. Paul's highest value is not his freedom or liberty or any of that. Paul does not say, give me liberty or give me death. Paul says, I'd be happy to be a slave. In fact, I've made myself a slave because caring for other people is more important. Realize how profound that is. If I offered you two options, you can be a free person and do what you want, or you can be a slave, but more people will get saved. The Apostle Paul says, I'll take the second option all day long. This is in sharp contrast to the selfishness of the Corinthians. They're abusing spiritual gifts. They're doing what they want to do. They're making it all about them. Paul is saying, though I'm literally free, I've actually made myself a slave because what's more important is saving people with the gospel. This is very counterintuitive. Listen, the chief sin of man is autonomy. What does the devil tell Adam in the garden? If you eat of this, you will be like God. That's the chief sin of man is trying to be like God. You'll be like God determining good and evil. You get to pick what's right and wrong. You don't have to submit. You, you get to cross this infinite gap between what's created and creator. And Paul here says that sin continues today. We want autonomy. We want freedom. We want to call the shots. Paul, though, is happy to be considered a slave. The, uh, the publisher for my book sent me an email and they said, we've changed a few words of the book. And I said, no problem, what did you change? And one of the things they said that they've changed is, they said, where you use the word slaves, we've changed it to enslaved people. And I said, why? And they said, well, the, the term slaves doesn't seem to have much value. Our culture's moving away from that term. This is just a better way to say it. And so I wrote back, the Bible calls us slaves. Don't read culture's assumptions that your value comes from how free you are or how much privilege you have or how much authority you have or any of that. Your value comes from Christ and Christ alone. So here's what Paul's saying in verse 19. A voluntary restraining of one's rights because of the gospel is more important than anything else. More important than your freedoms, more important than what you want to do. A voluntary restraining of one's rights because of the gospel is more important. As Martin Luther, the German reformer would say, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You see, there's this irony in being a Christian. On the one hand, you're free. He who the Son is set free is free indeed. You own everything. You get to inherit the world because you're in Christ. And yet, you're also everybody's slave. You're everybody's servant. You get a chance to, to kneel down and wash feet. Or somebody more important than Luther, Jesus, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh-oh. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By the way, by calling Jesus the form of God, Judaism only holds to one God. The Bible says about a thousand times there's only one God, yet Jesus is in that category, okay? He is the one God distinct from the Father and the Spirit, yet fully and truly God. And when it says that he emptied himself, that doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his godness. He didn't empty himself of his deity. What he emptied himself was of his, his, his privilege. He has a right to not step off the throne and go get crucified, but instead he lays that down for the sake of saving humanity. It's not that he lays down any of his divine attributes. The little baby Jesus who is uh, being held by Mary is the same Jesus who's holding the universe together. What does he lay down his privilege? He's saying if Jesus, God incarnate, can lay down his rights, his privileges, can you not do the same? So here's the first thing I want you to see about evangelism from this text. Evangelism is part of your purpose as a Christian. You exist to glorify God by making full-fledged disciples. Yes and amen. But it's hard to make a disciple of somebody that doesn't, doesn't know the gospel. Part of your purpose is evangelism. Paul goes even to the point of making himself a slave to others. Do you live your life that way? I think most of us just live our normal lives. We go to work. We have family. We have t-ball. We go on vacation. We save money. And if we get a chance to share the gospel, cool. Paul reorients his entire life around evangelism. So there's ways where you can start thinking about this, where you can think, when I go to a restaurant, I'm going to start asking for the same waiter every time that I go so that I can eventually develop a relationship with them. So eventually I can share Christ, right? Now, don't be weird with it. Tip them well. Don't leave them attract. Don't try to share the gospel the very first time you meet them. Be smart about it. But do you view life that way? Do you know your neighbors? Have you gotten to know your neighbors that live around you? Have you had them over for dinner? Not, not to do something weird like make them watch the Passion of the Christ after dinner, right? Not to sing a hymn at the table, but just to be normal and love on them. Have you done that? When your friends, your, your, your kids rather, have little friends that are over at the house, do they get to see that your home is different than theirs if they're not believers? That there's a joy, there's a grace, there's a kindness in the way that you interact. Have you ever sat down and thought, how can I orient my entire life so that I can set up opportunities to share the gospel with people? Because that's what we see Paul do here in verse 19. He continues, verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Let's look at that first phrase. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Now, let me just clarify. Those two statements are the exact same thing. To be a Jew and to be under the law are the same thing. So let's clarify something. When the Bible here uses the word law, don't think civil law. It's not saying that, uh, you know, that we're just free to break the speed limit sign or whatever. It's not talking about civil law. It's also not just talking about generally about God's commands that just happen all throughout the Bible. When it's saying law here in the context of Judaism, it is meaning what is called the Mosaic law. And Mosaic doesn't mean like where you take a bunch of little stones and make a picture by pushing them together. It means related to Moses, the law of Moses. Within the Old Testament, you've got a bunch of stuff in there, but there's this small sliver of that, which are commands that were given to Israel for a time. They were temporary so that they might look different than the other nations. That is what's called the Mosaic law. So just keep that in mind. As Paul is hanging out with Jews, here's what he's saying. When I'm around Jews, I keep certain elements of the Mosaic law just for the purposes of evangelism, okay? So when Paul is hanging out with the Jews, he's like, hey, Mordecai, hey, Benjamin, beards are the best. They're speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, right? 
He's like, bacon? Bacon's disgusting. Let's not even talk about bacon, right? They give each other gifts. They're like, Paul, do you love dreidels? He's like, I love dreidels. They're my favorite. When he gives them a gift, it's got menorah wrapping paper. He is doing the Judaism thing, okay? So that's what he's saying, that he is, he's adapting these things. So the second thing I want you to see about evangelism here is evangelism is not merely an action, it's a lifestyle. This is something that we were all mistaught growing up. We were all taught growing up that the way to do evangelism is to go door to door, to run up to somebody on the street, to give them a tract, to give them four spiritual laws, to say God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, to ask the terrifying question, if you were to die today, would you go to hell? To a total stranger. And we were taught, for example, how to share the gospel in 30 seconds on an elevator ride. That is not the method that Paul takes at all, okay? In fact, I would say in 2021, those methods don't work as well as they did 80 years ago because people have a different worldview. If I'm sharing the gospel to a Hindu, he does not mean the same thing by sin that I do. He does not mean the same thing of God that I do. He does not mean the same thing of repentance that I do. People's worldviews are so different, you usually cannot share the gospel in 30 seconds. So hear this, evangelism should be a marathon, not a sprint. Evangelism should be a marathon, not a sprint. Paul doesn't just show up to the Jews and say, believe in Jesus now. He hangs out with them. He acts Jewishly around them. That's what Paul is doing. Third implication of evangelism from this. Evangelism involves adapting your lifestyle to best reach others. Adapting your lifestyle to best reach others. Being a cultural chameleon. Let me explain what I do and don't mean. First of all, we don't change the message ever. The message of the gospel never changes. We don't say to the LGBTQ community, because you're offended by what the Bible says about homosexuality, we're gonna water it down. We don't change the message. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church, so true doctrine has been around for 2,000 years and longer, going back into the Old Testament, we never change the message. We never change doctrine, okay? Additionally, this text is not talking about how we should change our actions to not offend other Christians. Again, we're talking about lost people. Here is what Paul is doing. He changes the method, but not the message. The message of Christianity and the gospel stays the same, but the wrapping paper that he puts it in, the method, how he acts around different people, that does change. So so let me give you an example. Let's say I wanna give my wife a beautiful necklace, okay? I give my wife a beautiful necklace and I buy three of the same necklace, okay? So I wanna give my wife this necklace. I also wanna give a second necklace to my daughter who's four. And I also wanna give another necklace to my grandmother. The necklaces are all the same, but when I go to give them that gift, I'm gonna use different wrapping paper for each one. For my wife, I'm gonna use a wrapping paper that you know Chip and Joanna Gaines like or something. I'll have to look it up online. To my daughter, oh, for my daughter who's four, it's gonna be unicorns and pink and sparkles. She came up to the, us the other day and she said, I wish you didn't name me Isla. I wish you named me Rainbow Sparkles. And I said, honey, I think that would severely limit your career options when you get older. For my grandmother, if I'm giving her the same necklace, I'm going to put some sort of floral wrapping paper or, you know, Ronald Reagan wrapping paper or something. (laughs) Whatever my grandmother would like, notice that the necklace is the same. The packaging is what changes. Paul is not changing the gospel. He's not telling Jews, yeah, you don't need to believe in Jesus. You're already Jewish. Rather, he's just changing for the purposes of evangelism. He's changing his lifestyle. Now, here's something that is very, again, countercultural. Paul is saying, you should change your personality, you should change your behavior, and you should change your lifestyle to reach others for Christ. Now, as soon as we hear that, we think, that sounds like we're being fake. 
That sounds like we're not being authentic. You're telling me the Bible tells me I need to change my personality depending on who I'm hanging out with? You mean I need to change my actions and my lifestyle depending on who I'm hanging out with? That's exactly what it's saying. You see, because our culture is bought into a lie, and maybe you've bought into this lie, you think that who you, who you are is what doesn't need to change. That's what our culture says. Your identity, who you are, is just how you are, how you're born, that's it. If somebody tells you to change or somebody tells you that you're walking in some sort of sexual perversion or whatever, that is them oppressing you. Your individuality is just who you are. If you're a terrible person, keep being a terrible person and others can deal with it. In fact, they even say that it's brave to act upon sinful impulses. How brave to do what you already want to do. Animals do that. In the Bible, you're a slave. You've died when you became a Christian. There is no more you. You don't have your own hopes and dreams. You don't have your own identity. You belong to Christ, and that is the most freedom you can possibly have. Paul is saying, yeah, you might need to change your personality to reach others. And we say, but that, that, why would I change who I am? If you're a Christian, who you are is in Christ. It's not what you think your personality is. That's you actually being fake. That's you actually, the most authentic thing a Christian can do is be like Christ. Paul continues, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So here's what he's saying. I'm changing the things about me to reach Jewish people for the gospel, but I'm not actually under the Mosaic law. I'm not actually under these commands anymore. And a lot of people get this wrong, so please pay attention. There are a lot of Jewish ministries and there are a lot of Messianic synagogues. Are those good or bad? The short answer is some are good and some are bad. If you have a ministry to Jewish people and you simply keep elements of the Mosaic law to reach Jews... That's fine. That's what Paul is doing. But if you think that it is somehow holier, it is somehow better, it is somehow godlier for you to abstain from certain types of food or to keep certain holy days or to do these Jewish things, you are so far off that Paul would say you're preaching another gospel. The line is that stark. So if a ministry reaches Jewish people by acting Jewish, that's fine. But if they actually think that it's somehow better to follow the Mosaic law, You see this in a cult known as the Hebrew Roots Movement. You see this in certain forms of Zionism. If you want to support Israel politically, go for it. It's great to have a Western ally within the middle of a bunch of Muslim nations, but you don't get to support them because you think it's a fulfillment of the prophecy from 1948, okay? That's not what's going on. That's not the land that's allotted in the Old Testament to Israel. Over 55% of Israel claims to be atheist or agnostic. That's not a fulfillment of prophecy. So, Can you take on certain Jewish elements to reach Jewish people? Yes, that's fine. But if you think that you should, you must, or it's holier to keep certain elements of the Mosaic law today, you are misunderstanding the Bible. That's why Paul is clear that he's not under it. I was working for a church one time and a Messianic synagogue, which which are Jews that believe in Jesus, came and said, can we use your building on Saturday since you're not using it on Saturday? And we said, well, we'll meet with you. And we asked them questions. Do you believe in the Trinity? Yes, we believe in the Trinity as Orthodox Christianity has defined it historically. Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God, co-equal, co-eternal, became man, born of a virgin, etc.? Yes, we believe in that. Do you believe that one is justified by faith alone, that we cannot earn our salvation? It is a gift. Yes, we believe that. And we thought, this meeting's going pretty well. And then I asked, do you think that there is any spiritual benefit in keeping the Mosaic law? Not that you just do it for the purposes of evangelism, but you think there's a spiritual benefit. You're somehow a little bit closer to God if you don't eat pork, a little bit closer to God if you have your kids circumcised, a little bit closer to God if you keep certain religious festivals and holy days. And he said, well, yeah, I think God still intends us to keep it. 
And that answer, though it seems small, allowed us to say, you may not use our building and we don't even think you're a Christian. That's how big of a deal this is to Paul. As Paul would say to the Galatians, foolish Galatians, you who began by the Spirit, are you trying to be completed by works of the law, meaning Mosaic law? So Paul's going to be clear. I'll do this for evangelism, but it's not because it's holier. Christians are no longer under the Mosaic law. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, meaning the Mosaic law. Notice, not under any of it. It's not as though God just gave like 20 commands and then like sacrifices dropped off and circumcision dropped off, but you keep the other 18. The law is seen as a whole unit, and he's saying you are not under that. Christ has fulfilled all of it. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That's strong language. Zach, are you saying the Mosaic covenant that was temporary to Israel is now obsolete? That's what God is saying. And he uses very strong language intentionally. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. In Acts 15, they're trying to figure out now that Gentiles are coming into the church, what do we have to keep of the Mosaic law? Here's what they say, Acts 15, 28 through 29. For as it has seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements from the Mosaic law, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, which we'll see later you can eat idol meat in 1 Corinthians, this is temporary, and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So when the early church is trying to say, what Mosaic law command should Christians keep today? They don't do what the reformers do. There's a moral law, a civil law, and a ceremonial law. You still have to keep one third of the law, but not the other two thirds. That's not what they do. What they say is you're not under any of it. In the meantime, let's not do things that offend your Jewish brothers. Eating meat that's been strangled, blood, eating things sacrificed to idols. And let's not commit sexual immorality because the Bible condemns that, not just in the Mosaic law, but all over the place. That's what they're doing. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 3, 24 through 25, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now listen to this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That word guardian means babysitter. It's the Greek word pedagogos. It means a tutor. It's someone who watches children. What he's saying is the Mosaic law was not bad. It was a babysitter. And when Israel was little, they needed a babysitter. But now that Christ has come, you no longer need the babysitter. That's what the Bible's saying. The law was not bad. It was just temporary. But Zach, did God change? What? No, of course God didn't change. We changed. If I tell my son to hold my hand when we cross the street, he doesn't do that when he's 20. I didn't change. He did. We were in one period when he's little, and now we're in a different period. That's what Paul is saying about the Mosaic law. God had always intended to give it to Israel temporarily in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament, he had always intended to give it to Israel temporarily. God did not change. It was always just a guardian. It was a babysitter. But now that Christ has come, you've grown up. Verse 21. <clears throat> to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Let's look at that first phrase. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So when Paul's hanging out with Jews, he's doing Jewish stuff. When he talks about those who are outside the law, he doesn't mean like lawless people, like bandits. What he means are Gentiles, those that don't have the Mosaic law. So when he's hanging out with Gentiles, he's like, hey, I don't know, Troy, I'm trying to think of a good Greco-Roman name. Hey, Troy, great to see you. And he's speaking in Greek. 
And they're like, Paul, do you want a BLT? And he's like, I'd love a BLT. Bacon is delicious. Let's talk about the chariot races or whatever it might be. To the Jews, he's a Jew. To the Gentiles, he's a Gentile. So I want you to see this fourth thing about evangelism. Evangelism involves hanging out with lost and unchurched people. Evangelism involves hanging out with lost and unchurched people. This is again something we were lied to if you grew up in church growing up. We were told this. So you trust in Christ, you're saved, you get baptized. As soon as you come out of the water, people give you like an acoustic guitar for some reason because all evangelicals have to play an acoustic guitar. And then you're told, don't hang out with lost people. Hang out with Christians, read Christian books, watch Christian movies, only use Christian curricula, only do Christian things. Stay away from the losties or you'll catch the sinnies. Stay away from them, right? Because that's what they say. Bad company corrupts good character. If you hang out with the lost, you're gonna do what lost people do. Notice that the heroes in the Bible and Christ himself do the exact opposite. They hang out with lost people. Now, if you say, but Zach, what if you hang out with lost people and you start committing their sins? Then you're probably not a Christian. Maybe you should be a Christian first. If you're a Christian, you have the ability to say no to these certain sins. You see, you don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. It's like people who are lost have this sickness, this death, the sinnies, but we have the vaccine. We have the cure, Jesus. And what protects us is not staying away from the people with the disease. It's that we have the cure. Notice that Paul is hanging out with unchurched people. It would have probably been a little bit rough to hang out with a bunch of Gentiles. Matthew 9, 10 through 13, the thing that Jesus is most accused of in the Bible, hanging out with losties. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love that last line because I happen to be not the righteous, but a sinner. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh Uh-oh, Zach. You see, the Bible said not to hang out with the gays. No, he continues, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. John 17, 14 through 15, when Jesus is praying, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, okay? The liberals, the Muslims, the LGBTQ community, they are not our enemies. They are the mission field. Some of you have too much of an us versus them mentality. Now, don't get me wrong. Their ideologies are opposed to the ideology of Christianity, no doubt. But the people themselves are those who need the gospel. The people themselves are those we are called to love. And Paul does that in hanging out with Gentiles. He continues, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Notice this. Some people have thought that what he means by the phrase, the law of Christ, is the same thing as the Mosaic law. Whatever those phrases mean, they don't mean the same thing. Paul is directly contrasting these things. I don't have to keep the Mosaic law. I'm not under that. But I am still under whatever he means by this phrase, the law of Christ. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, though I'm not bound by Old Testament Mosaic law to have to keep, you know, Rosh Hashanah, to have to not eat pork, to not get to trim the edges of my beard, that doesn't mean I'm free to do whatever the heck I want. 
I still have to submit to Christ. That's what he's saying. New Testament scholar at Duke Divinity School, Richard Hayes says, being free from the law does not mean that Paul runs wild with self-indulgence. A point uh, or a word pointedly spoken to the Corinthians who are proclaiming, I am free to do anything. Instead, he lives with a powerful sense of obligation to God defined now by his relationship to Christ. Let me give you the example we've given here about a thousand times and we're gonna keep doing it. How should Christians think about the biblical rules today? Here's the illustration. Imagine that you're in the great state of Louisiana, okay? I like Louisiana. They got kind of that jazz swamp thing going on. Great food. You're in Louisiana, okay? And you're driving, and you're driving 70 miles an hour. The law, the rule, 70 miles an hour on the highway. You with me so far? What jurisdiction are you under? Yeah, Louisiana, not Florida, not Arizona, Louisiana. If you get pulled over by an officer, what kind of officer will it be? One who belongs to Louisiana. If you have to stand before a judge, what judge will it be? A Louisiana judge who speaks some form of Cajun you don't understand, right? Now, that's fine. Louisiana is great. You now cross into the new covenant. You cross into Texas. A, a, be- a better covenant. The old one is becoming obsolete. It's ready to vanish away, but you're now in Texas. The new covenant. The speed limit still says 70 miles an hour. You might assume that you're still in Louisiana because the rules are the same. 70 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour. But are you under the same jurisdiction that you were? No. If you get pulled over, it will be by a Texas law enforcement officer. If you stand before a judge, you will stand before a Texan. You will stand before a Texas judge. So what a lot of people have done is they see, for example, that in the Mosaic Law and in the Ten Commandments, we're commanded not to murder. And they say in the New Testament, we're commanded not to murder. And they say, ah, we're still in Louisiana. We're still under the Mosaic Law. No, just because the signs both say 70 miles an hour or no murder or whatever, that doesn't mean that you follow them for the same reason. It doesn't mean you're under the same jurisdiction. I today don't murder. Do you know why? At least, at least not physically. I do in my heart. But at least physically, okay, I don't murder. D- is the reason that I don't murder because I'm still under these tablets of stone given thousands of years ago? No. The reason I don't murder today is because I'm under Christ and he has commanded me to love God and love others. I've been told not to murder in a bunch of other places in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament Mosaic law. So Paul is saying, just because I'm not under the Mosaic law, when I hang out with Gentiles, I don't just do whatever I want. I still have to obey Christ. Verse 22a, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Now let's clarify what we do and don't mean by this because this word weak has changed meanings over a chapter. Back in chapter eight, Paul divided Christians into two categories, strong and weak. Now let me clarify that. He is not saying that they are tiered or there's some sort of a stratification of Christians. It's not as though you have varsity and JV Christians. There's one faith, one hope, one baptism. Everyone in Christ is equally close to God. Amen? Okay, he's not saying there are two levels of Christians. By saying strong and weak, he's referring to the Christian's conscience. We have a tendency to think that a strong Christian is one that stays away from anything that's in the world, even if it's not sinful. We think that a strong Christian is one who doesn't drink and doesn't dance and doesn't play cards and tucks in their shirt and straightens their tie and, you know, says, boy, howdy, hallelujah, whatever. We think that's a strong Christian. Paul's actually going to say that that's a weak Christian. A strong Christian is one who knows that Christianity is so about Jesus that their conscience is not bothered by all these little morally neutral issues, what are called adiaphora. It's the weak Christian whose conscience is too sensitive, whose conscience is bothered by things that are not actually sinful. 
So let me clarify. It's not that if you get a tattoo, you're a strong Christian, and if you don't have one, you're weak. It's if you don't think tattoos are sinful, then you're strong. It's not that if you drink, you're a strong Christian, and if you don't, you're weak. It's that if you know that drinking is not sinful, then you're a strong Christian. So that's what Paul had meant up until this point, all throughout chapter eight. Here though, I don't think that's what he means at all for two reasons. Here's the big one. He's not talking about Christians in this passage. He's talking about lost people. He's not talking about Christians that are offended by certain acts of eating idol meat in 1 Corinthians or drinking in 21st century America. He's talking about lost people. So I don't think he can be talking about the weak, meaning the weak Christian, because he's trying to save them with the gospel. <clears throat> Additionally, we'll see that Paul will go on to side with the strong. Paul will eat meat. Paul will drink. Paul will do these kind of things. So what I think he means by saying to the weak, I became weak is the socially weak, the downcast, the down and out in society. Paul, though he's a free person, though he could have made money and done all these things, he's happy to lay that down to help the least of these. There are a lot of things that make historic Orthodox biblical Christianity unique from all the other world's religions. One is our view of God, who's a Trinity. The other one is our view of salvation, that we are saved just by trusting in Christ. We cannot earn it. It's a free gift. But there's another one that a lot of people miss, and it's this. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God doesn't choose the best and the brightest. Just look around, right? God doesn't choose the best and the brightest. Now that is unique to Christianity. If, take Greco-Roman religion, by the way, where you have the gods. The gods in the Greco-Roman world, they want the best. Who do they love? According to Homer, swift-footed Achilles. They love the great warriors. They love the wealthy. They love the smart. They love the powerful. The Greco-Roman gods don't love the poor. The poor should work harder. The Greco-Roman gods don't love the dumb. The dumb should go get educated. God, though, because he's great and he does not need humanity and he does not need our help, chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God is on the side of what the world considers lowly. God is on the side of the destitute, the broken. God is on the side of the poor, not the way our culture defines it, but the actual poor. God is on the side of those that are oppressed, not the way our culture defines it, but the actual oppressed. And so what Paul is doing is he is saying, I'm being Christ-like. I'm stepping down into the weak. I'm becoming weak as well. Verse 22b, I've become all things to all people that I may, I'm sorry, that by all means I might save some. Now, as a crescendo here, Paul is saying, I do whatever I have to do for lost people to get saved. Let me give a few clarifiers. First of all, this does not mean that you commit the same sin as the people you're ministering to. Paul doesn't say, to the stripper, I became a stripper. To the drug dealer, I became a drug dealer, right? He doesn't do it that way. He'll hang out with those people, but he will not commit their sin. Additionally, this text is not saying to avoid controversy at all cost, okay? But if people are upset, they should be upset because the gospel is offensive, not because you just have an offensive personality. And I realize that's ironic as I say that, okay? I realize that. You can't keep from offending everybody. We live in a culture that's just very offended. My wife called the doctor the other day, and uh, my last name is Lee, in case you didn't know. And uh, the receptionist said, Mrs. Lee, can I put you on hold? And she said, no problem. And the receptionist got back on the phone and said, okay, I'm sorry, Mrs. Chung? And my wife said, nope. Now, we were not offended because our fake Asian heritage was insulted. Lee's also a British last name. We just let it go, but that's not our culture. Our culture gets very offended. So Paul's not saying you can avoid all controversy and he's not saying to commit the sin. What he's saying is he's reorienting his entire life 
with this idea of missions and evangelism to reach the lost. He's doing whatever he has to do, which leads to my fifth implication about evangelism. Evangelism involves being an excellent student of culture. That's what Paul has to do to reach Jew and Gentile. You need to know the Bible really well and you need to know culture really well. And I'm afraid that many of you know the first, but not the second. If you know the Bible really well, the sufficiency of scripture, you have everything you need to please and know God rightly. Yes and amen. But if you actually want to be effective in evangelism, you're also going to have to be a good student of culture. Acts 17, 22 through 31. Look how Paul addresses these uh, <clears throat> philosophers. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, Paul is going to now quote pagan literature in the Bible. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought, uh, ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The apostle Paul doesn't just show up and give the Athenians a track. Tracked. He doesn't just show up and say, believe in Jesus or you'll go to hell. He doesn't street preach. Do you know what he does? He studies their temples. He finds the things that are valued in their culture. He talks to people in the marketplace. He reads their literature. These are the movies of his day. These are quotes from Epimenides and Aratus. These are pagan philosophers, pagan poets. He's reading their books. He's learning everything about their culture so he can create this bridge between the gospel and what they already believe. Do you do that? Do you know what's going on in our culture? Do you know how our culture uses words? Do you know what's going on politically? Do you read the books of our culture? Do you watch the movies of our culture? Do you watch the shows of our culture? Not all of them. I agree, some of them you should not watch, but most of them you can. Are you an excellent student of culture or did you check out 30 years ago and think that as long as I just have this Bible, I don't need to learn anything to reach people? You obviously inherently don't think that's the case because if you go down to Mexico and you don't speak Spanish, you know what you need in addition to the Bible? Spanish, right? There are other things you need to know if you want to be effective for evangelism. This leads to the sixth implication. Evangelism involves having social awareness and self-awareness. Evangelism involves having social awareness and self-awareness. Now, 95% of you, I think, are doing a great job on this, but I have to say something that's a little bit offensive, but I know you guys like that because this is Parkway. Some of you will never be good at evangelism until you learn how to change certain things about your social awareness and your self-awareness. Some of you love Christ very much, but you come off to people in a way that's gonna be very off-putting to them. Do you do what Paul does and change that? Do you do what Paul does and change that? Do you ask other Christians around you, hey, what do you see in me that needs to change? How do I come off to people? What do they perceive? Some of you have taken these little pet topics and you have exalted them over the gospel to where instead of people hearing about Jesus, they hear your rants of either why you're against or pro-vaccine or against or pro-mask or against or pro-homeschool or something else. We can have those debates. That's not our message. 
Our message is Christ. But before you can even give somebody Christ, they've already read the weird social media post that you've put and you've lost that opportunity. Do you have social and self-awareness enough to reach others for Christ? Now you might be thinking, but Zach, I don't care what other people think. Paul does. Paul cares what the Jews think when he's around the Jews. He cares what the Gentiles think when he's around the Gentiles. Some of you care too much what people think. That's called fear of man. But others of you don't care enough what people think. You obviously care a little bit. You comb your hair, you brush your teeth, you wear clothes that match. But if you want to be good at evangelism, you're going to have to be better as far as saying, what do I need to change about my personality? Zachary, again, are you saying we have to change our personalities? Yes, the Bible's gonna command it of you because you don't belong to you. Who cares about your personality? Your personality is Christ, that's it, that's it. And that's what Paul's gonna do. Do you do that, okay? There are things I have to change. As Jeff Ashley has said to me, Zach, be 70% of yourself, okay? (laughs) There are things we have to change, okay? Welcome to Christianity. Jesus finds you as you are, and then he changes you. That includes how you interact with others. Finally, verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. By the way, just as a little aside, I just thought of this as a little aside. Several of you have emailed us asking whether you should or shouldn't get the vaccine. Here's our answer. Talk to a doctor. We're pastors. If you want to know that you have a biblical right to do it or not do it, yes. But what should you do? Talk to your doctor. Stop sending us emails on things because I'll be like, I don't know, take aspirin. I don't know anything about medicine, okay? Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, what does this mean? Yes, it's true that by being this evangelist, Paul will be blessed. God blesses obedience for sure because we're involved with what God is doing. So if I ask my son who's six to help me work on the car, is he really helping me work on the car? No, he doesn't know how to fix it. He doesn't know what the names of the tools are. What is he doing? He's spending time with daddy. He's learning from daddy. He's being loved on by daddy. So he's helping me, but he's not really helping me. That's how we help God. We don't really help him. Notice the passage we just read in Acts that he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So yes, there's a sense in which as Paul is a faithful evangelist, God blesses him. I don't actually think that's the main point though of verse 23, and I'll tell you why. In Greek, it's a, it's a more obscure verse. Here's what it says in Greek, literally. But all I do for the sake of the gospel in order that a partner of it I may be. It's very Yoda-ish. But all I do for the sake of the gospel in order that a partner of it I may be. What does it mean to be a partner of the gospel? What's probably being referenced here is the fact that the Apostle Paul, yes, he'll be blessed for his evangelistic works, but the Apostle Paul is living a cruciformed life. He's living a cross-shaped life. He's doing what Jesus did. Jesus is the eternal God, the God of the Old Testament. And yet, what does he do? He comes down and he becomes man while remaining God and he serves the lowly. He serves the weak. Paul has taken his entire life and said, what does it look like to be an evangelist? What does it look like to give up things, to be with the poor, to share the gospel, to share the good news? That's what he means by being a partner of the gospel is that he embodies the gospel. He lives what's become kind of an overused phrase in evangelicalism, an actual gospel-centered life. So this leads to the seventh implication about evangelism. Evangelism is part of being like Christ. Evangelism is part of being like Christ. If there's anybody that had a right to not have to lay down freedoms, it's God. And yet he takes on humanity for our benefit. He already has the same glory, whether he saves a human or doesn't. But for our benefit, takes on humanity, is homeless, is spit upon, is cursed at, is killed for us, for creatures who hate him, for creatures who rebel against him. And when you are laying down your rights 
in being a servant of the gospel, you're being like Christ. You're being like Christ. So I want to end by just saying this. In a room this size, there are several people here who don't know Christ, who are not saved. So you just need to hear this. If I might be a congregant to a congregant, here's what you need to hear. There is a God and you have rebelled against him just like I have. I am not better than you. I'm probably worse. I have sinned so much. You've sinned. We've all sinned. We need grace because we've offended an infinite being and the punishment for offending an infinite being is infinite punishment. That is the idea of hell. Hell is not a fairy tale. This is not the Loch Ness Monster. This is real. It is what happens to those who profane God's glory and never repent and never seek mercy. They get the just results of their actions. And if you don't know Christ or you think that you're saved because you're a good person. Might I remind you, there are no good people biblically. God doesn't demand you be good. He demands you be perfect. There's not good people and bad people. There's bad people in Jesus. Those are your options. You either belong to this group or you repent and you get put in this group. You get, get put in Christ. Those are your options. If you die, you will go to hell. But here's the good news that you need to hear. If you will but bow the knee, if you will but repent, if you will turn away and you will ask Jesus to save you, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get better. You don't have to get rid of your desires. You just come before God broken and say, help me a sinner. Zach just said that you came not to save the righteous, but sinners. And I'm a sinner. Would you help me? He will do that. He will save you. He will grant you new life. As I pray, if that's you and you don't know Christ, would you right there in your chair, ask him to save you? Would you repent? If you've been viewing him wrongly, if you come from some other religion or something like that and you're just here visiting, would you repent? If you're somebody who has been in church your whole life and you think because of your church attendance and your Bible study that somehow that makes you right with God, would you repent? I'm gonna give everybody a chance to repent and call on Christ for salvation as I pray. You don't have to do anything weird. I'm not gonna make you stand up or anything, but would you deal with what you need to deal with now? You cannot earn salvation. It's a gift. Let's pray as we get ready to take communion. Almighty God, right now, I pray that you would convict hearts in this room who do not know you deeply, that you wouldn't let them sleep, that you wouldn't leave them alone until you convert them. I pray for those that are anxious about their salvation that really do love you, but they just never feel like you love them back. I pray that they wouldn't hear this message inappropriately, that they would know they don't have to have perfect faith to be saved. You don't have to have perfect repentance to be saved. You're saved as a sinner and you stay as a sinner. The difference though is that you, God, see us as saints. Would you be with us? I pray that Parkway would be a church marked by evangelism. I pray that we would be bringing in so many lost people, that we would be hanging out with so many lost people that people say about us what they said about Christ. Those people at Parkway sure do hang out with a lot of sinners. That's pretty scandalous. Because then we'll know that we're doing what Jesus did. We love you and thank you. Amen.